If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Sending out good vibes. Because it's not a philosophical question. You just get a good resolution image. And using cell phones uh, to look at UAP, you know, it's not really the best way to figure them out. What you want is a large enough telescope that will get us a, a crisp image. And that's what we're planning to put together. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. We are a big show, big one, I guess. We're going to be chatting with Professor Avi Loeb a little bit later about unidentified aerial phenomena and uh, stuff that flew past Earth at crazy speed, maybe some sort of sun sail or debris or who knows. It's a fascinating chat. And uh, we got everybody's favorite podcaster, Graham. I got my beanie on today, Dunlop. Hey, buddy. You wear shorts and a beanie. No, I don't have shorts on. I got the pants on. Yeah. Oh boy. The yeah. short pants. Yeah, I should wear shorts though again. I mean, really. Why? Because they're comfortable. Are they? Yeah. In what way? I didn't put a pair of pants on for mo- like three months, I think, during the summer. Really? Yeah. Well, you didn't leave your house either. So. <laughs> <laughs> what was the last time? You only wear pants when you leave the house, probably. Yeah. 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 How often do you leave the house? You know, whenever I have to. Which is like, what? Because now you found Instacart. No, I don't use that. No. I go I go out shopping. I went, you still go I went shopping? Today. Yeah, I went today. Yeah. I have to get out of the house. I don't go to the people. store too often anymore. But I see people all day. I mean, I guess that's probably a highlight for you. You go to the store, see some people. <laughs> Especially when Maria's not here. You probably start thinking you're a cat after a couple of days. Yeah, that's right. I do. Yeah, I can see it. My as soon as you and... show up here, the cat jumps down, starts nuzzling you. You're like, I walked in the door just a minute ago and you were like talking cat to the cat. Yeah. I cop in and Graham's like. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucked up, bro. Cats are awesome. They are. They're all right. But you shouldn't, like, talk like a cat. That's weird. You don't lick your cats, do you? No. Ever? No. Okay. I don't like them. I don't mind when the cat licks me. Kiss them sometimes. But Kiss them? Yeah. Mouth closed? Yeah. All right. So, uh, how you been? Good, good. I know I almost killed you yesterday, making you move stuff again. Yep, you did. But you powered through? Yeah, we'll see. I won't be able to get on my seat after this. I can't even walk up and down the stairs, honestly. It's like my legs are sore than they've been maybe ever. <laughs> even after all the ball hockey. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it reminds me of like first time out ball hockey sprinting, but this is worse because it's like, I'm, I think I probably walked up maybe 5,000 steps or 7,000 steps yesterday. My or ankles are bugging me. Yeah. That's because I wore the wrong boots. Yeah. If I would have wore my high boots with my ankle support, I would have been fine. Yeah. We should have Casey and Milo there. They could have done a barefoot. There you go. Yeah, exactly. In the yeah. snow. The snow's in a the bitch, ice, so yeah. that's, that's the problem is the snow. Yeah, it was snowing in the middle of a move. Oh, brutal. Anyways, we're here. We're here. We're podcasting. We love it. We just had a great chat with uh, with Robert Frederick that'll come out in this show next week about bacon, Francis Bacon and scientism and stuff. And so, yeah, it's, it's just fun. It's great. We got yeah. another one. We got another UFO one coming up next week. 
with uh, the guys from the movie Observers, I think it was called. It was a pretty interesting documentary. Um, yeah, the Observers. So we have Roger and John. So that'd be John Greenwald from the the Black Vault and Roger, the producer, I think, or the, what's the other, what's not a producer, but the director, maybe? Director, yeah. producer. One or the other from Observers. That was a pretty interesting documentary. Didn't they yeah. just film some stuff here yesterday, too, for Linda's thing? Yeah, they did, too, right? Yeah, yeah, that's from Celia, from uh, from the CE5 group. Yeah, to Fire Beyond. Yeah, or no, what Fire the Grid. Fire, fire the, the grid. grid, yeah. And that, what, did you hear anything about that? Because you were going to go to that, but then they kicked you out because there wasn't enough room? Yeah, I mean, they didn't, yeah, they didn't, yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> You were on the waiting list. That's okay. I had to help you move. So it worked out. Yeah. Worked out for me. Yeah, worked out for me. So that went well, though. Hopefully, that went good. We could check. I don't that know. Out. I haven't heard. Of I mean, but it's funny. I do have something to talk about in that regard from the intro a little bit. Not fire the grid, but about the CE five group. So well, let's hear. It. I kind of thought because Avi Loeb, uh, you know, he's leading this whole. I mean, he's leading. Actually, I should read the bio now. For sure. him, because it'll give us perspective on the different parts of this ufology and stuff. Because he's he's like your real, you know, uh, atypical sort of awesome scientist, but he's also very open minded, you know. But he's got the education and he's got the credentials. So he was uh, he's the Frank Bay Beach Baird uh, Junior Professor of Science at Harvard. Um, he's a best-selling author. He's written way more books than I expected. He's got a PhD in physics from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, he led the first international project supported by the St Strategic Defensive Initiative, and this is in the 80s. Uh, he was subsequently a long-term member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He's written eight books, including this, this one we talk about, which is called Extraterrestrial. Um, let me just give you the subtitle of that. It's The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. That's that Oumuamua object that they measured coming by the earth and then going away. Um, where was I? Uh, he's also, you know, he's written about black holes and the search for extraterrestrial life in the universe. He's the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, or he was, uh, Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He was the head at this Galileo project, which just started this year. Actually, I'm going to read a little bit about that. The Galileo Project for the Systematic Scientific Search for Evidence of Extraterrestrial Technological Artifacts. So the goal of this project is to bring the search for ET, I'll just shorten it, ET technological signatures of extraterrestrial technological civilizations like ETCs from accidental or anecdotal observations and legends into the mainstream of transparent, validated, and systematic scientific research. This ground-based project serves for physical objects rather than electromagnetic sing signals associated with ET technological equipment. So that's the one he was talking about a lot in the show. I mean, it does make sense to make a, some sort of a probe or a drone that's thin enough that we could just like take it up into space and let the sunlight just push it out at the speed of light. That thing wasn't quite going the speed of light, but I get that's sort of the idea behind it, right? Is that the lights just the lights? Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, let me let me see that he might get it might get into this a little bit. So he's also um, 
Let me see where I was at here. So he'd been the longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. He's elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronauts. He's a former member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Tech, Board of Physics and Astronomy, and the current member of the advisory board for Einstein Visualize the Impossible at the Hebrew University. This is the one. He's also chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. Now, I think that's the one you're talking about with the light sails. Let me just confirm that. Well, so I was talking about along. the Ula Gula or whatever. Ula Bula? Oumuamua. Oumuamua. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about that thing that went by. That That's what that might have been from someone other than us. But it wasn't going the speed of light, but it was going very, very fast. I wonder if it would slow down after a while, right? After it got so far away from its sun. Because think about this. The earth is just constantly going around the sun. So you've got at least, I mean, you don't have, I don't know how many degrees are in a full sphere. I guess it'd be like 360 times 360 times 360 or something crazy like that for all the possibilities. But just in our 360 degree orbit, if we just sent one out a week. Well, that's that's kind of what he was talking about with the light sail ones. They were going to go all over with these little tiny things. If you went every day. These little tiny things that they can actually, because they, they have to, uh, there's a, a launch window type thing or something. Every two days or three days or something that they were going to do this. Now, I don't know if this is the, the breakthrough initiatives from, from this, uh, this one, but they're talking about it's a suite of space science programs investigating the fundamental questions of life in the universe. Are we alone? Are there habitable worlds in our galactic neighborhood? Can we make the great leap to the stars? But, I wanted to ask him, but we never had time. Yeah, he didn't. Because really... we can't like go up, right? We don't have that option. What do you, what do you like, mean? Like we can go within the sphere of the, if you take like the solar system and set it on the table, like a fucking, like a pie plate, say, right? Mm-hmm. We can't. We can only go within the pie plate. We can't come up really? above the pie plate. Did, I didn't know that. That's my understanding. Wow, because, no, because we can't really carry the fuel to stop the fucking energy propulsion and send you back to Earth. It's all sort of based on slingshotting around the moon and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I might be wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. But I don't think you can go up. Because that's what you'd want to do next is to go like over the sun and then launch probes that way. And you could get them in There's so many different directions. Though. But I don't think, and I meant to ask Avi about it and we just ran out of time. We ran out of time at the end. If we could like take off away from anything, you know what I mean? If there's yeah, yeah, no yeah. planet or anything out there, is our tech sufficient now that we could just, because he said we didn't have chance to chase it. And it's like, well, even if it's going slow enough, can we just take off if there's no planet there? And go, you know, as far as the moon, say, but in the opposite direction. And yeah. do we have the uh, a way to get back? Yeah. Or now you're just stuck out there. Until maybe you could just go and wait until we the earth comes around again. Or I, something, you know? I yeah, don't know. Yeah. But if you go up, you can't do that. Yeah. I think the uh, Yuri Milner was the guy that we we talked about years and years and years ago, who was one of these super rich Russian billionaires that was searching for extraterrestrial life. And he's the one that I think, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this either, but it's in his book, Extraterrestrial. And it's the light sail one, right? Where Avi and him were designing, he, he challenged Avi and them to go, I'll fund 
it. I don't know if it was fully funding or partially funding. If you can get to Alpha Centauri, I think that's that the nearest star yeah. system within three years or something, or like, you know, to get, well, to get something there. The speed of light. Yeah. So they had to develop something cheap and economical and fast and that, and they had these little, like basically like a light sail, small little probes with a, a light sail that can go a quarter of the speed of light. So it'd take, it would 12 take 12 years. years yeah. so it change, but yeah. I, don't know, I think they 16, said it was 16, 20 years. 16 years. I think the overall thing was 20 years. It would years take 16 and, years, and then the messages would take four years to come back. Right, at the speed of light. And yeah. then they said, they said what you were saying, they would shoot a bunch out to all these different, like, why not? If you could do that, because they made it scalable, obviously, that once you build, like, the actual cost of the actual component R&D that goes is nothing, right? And the launch is very minimal as well. So then you could start launching a whole whack of them once you get it all set up. Interesting. Yeah. But he wouldn't, like, he wasn't talking, like, I tried to ask him about that a little bit, but he didn't want to get into it. And I don't know if there was maybe some. Well, maybe that's because it's like, like I mean, you couldn't talk about it if you're on the verge of something either, right? I know. Maybe, yeah. And now he's got the Galileo project, which is, it's like happening now, fast. Like, people are interested in funding that now, so. Yeah, super stuff. interesting. We're so hoping then, that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, we're hoping some people are interested in funding us. Yeah, that'd be great. Grammarica slash support. <laughs> you know, our little podcast here, because people always think it's a free show. I always get best free show this, this but it's technically not a free show. It's no, the value. expenses are quite a bit actually. Well, that too, but it's a value for value show. Right, I mean, we don't right. market the show as a free show. We just put it out into the universe for free. In the hopes that the folks that find it and find value in it. I mean, if you're just listening to one or two episodes and you're like, eh, these guys aren't that great, then, you know, we don't expect you to support. But if you're listening to every episode, every, you know, most of the episodes, you know, buck a month, two bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, you decide, grammarica.ca slash support. Decide today. Maybe that could be your Christmas present to the Grammarica guys. A monthly, a new monthly subscription. Or you could head over to GrandAmericaOutlaw.ca and you could sign up for Plus over there. That helps too. And you get more podcasts out of the deal. Or you could just uh, buy some books over at AdultBrain.ca. All that stuff is great. Or come on a trip. Contact at thecabin.com. We're going to Hawaii where we might see some UFOs. But there's been lots of UFOs sighted on previous see trips. I mean, honestly. It's a, I mean, CAC seems to be a UFO event. They're watching yeah. us. They yeah. know we're up to something. They're like, yeah. these guys are going to get us. They're going to crack us. Crack the secret. They got Randall Carlson down there, Dave Matheson, this Brandon Powell character. Watch, keep an eye on these motherfuckers. So in order to round off this whole UFO thing, because obviously Avi's like, you know, at the tip of the spear of the scientific, the truly like the scientific establishment in a way, uh, search for ET. Then I have... I have some things to read, kind of part of like, let's say our project operation segment. I don't need a jingle for it really, but. No jingle? No jingle. It's okay. That's right there. I'm looking at it. You want to do it? Okay, do it. What's that noise? Looks military to me. Definitely military. Probably classified too. Dish fire. Prism. Sentry Eagle. Sigma. Mannerkin. Artichoke. MK Ultra. Operation Project. I forget what the other one sounds like. Yeah. That's okay. That's the same one. It's the same one. Yeah. Okay. That's fucking bullshit. So this is from, remember I was talking, did I mention in the show about about uh, the disclosure movement? Oh, well, hundreds of times. 
like from from Paradigm Research, like Stephen Bassett and all that. Hundreds of times. No, but in this last UFO episode, Congress. oh, in this in the last yeah, episode with, with Avi, I don't know. Anyway, so I've got one from the. This is a UAP, UAPs and nukes press conference. This is so. This is a Paradigm Research Group update. I'm just going to give you like three components of the UFO phenomena that sort of weird. Sort of I was talking about with Avi a little bit, but. Just to kind of round up the other things that are happening. That's Stephen Bassett. So he's saying, a notice has been posted on the National Press Club website announcing Captain Robert Salas. So wait, is Stephen Bassett the same guy who did that UFO Congress thing way back in the day? Went to Congress with all the UFO stuff? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. Well, right? no, that was Stephen Greer who did it in Not 2001. Not Greer, no, no, oh, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. Later, yeah, much yeah, later. Yeah, like, yeah. It was right around the time we started the show, I want to say, or very shortly after. Yeah. Yeah, so he says that Robert Salas will once again bring together military witnesses to inform the media about nuclear weapons tampering in the presence of UAP. The event is scheduled for October 19th, so that's this year. The press conference can be watched live. The press conference will be a powerful sequel to the one held on September 27th, 2010. This is the one. And produced by Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapon Sites, and, and Captain Salas, author of Faded Giant. The documentary UFOs and Nukes Secret Link Revealed followed in 2016. So RPG, which is the uh, oh, sorry, PR, PRG, uh, Paradigm Research Group, was able to determine that over 300 MSM print stories were published about the 2010 event, including every major newspaper in the UK, Fox News affiliates in all major cities covering the event. Some of the print coverage can be seen here. So he's just linking to all that stuff. The press conference should have triggered congressional hearings. It did not. But much has happened since. Our PRG has high confidence that nuclear weapons tampering witnesses will be the centerpiece at the upcoming UAP hearings. And then they get into uh, activism. This is peace in space treaty. This is kind of an interesting part of it. Chris Hedges begins his July 6, 2003 New York Times op-ed titled, What Every Person Should Know About War. With these words, what is war? War is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives. Oh, that's interesting. Did you ever know that definition? No. I've never looked it up. Mm. But uh, that makes sense now that you've said it. By that measure, there have been over 260 wars around the world. Before that, is it a skirmish? It'd be nice to know the hierarchy of yeah, that. Exactly. There's probably a bunch of little, yeah. like, uh, I'm going to find out. You Conflict, skirmish. I'll find out. Uh, by that measure, there have been over 260 wars around the world since 1900. It is quite likely that there has not been a single day without a conflict somewhere in the world in the past 121 years. Direct fatalities exceed 100 million with tens of millions of civilian deaths. As the scorpion said to the turtle, it's in my nature. It's what we do. There are governments planning to take war out of the solar system. Did you know that? Out of the solar system? No, it says... Well, that's a great idea. They should just take it out of the solar system. So I don't have to be fucking bothered with their there bullshit. Was one tiny little two-letter word. It's like, there. all right, all you countries can make your robots and they can go fight it out on the moon. And we can just live peacefully down here. That's how important a little two-letter word is. There are governments planning to take war out to the solar system. To see how that might turn out in 200 years or so, binge watch the superb sci-fi series The Expanse on Amazon. Then on to the Milky Way. It's what we do. 
But alas, we are not alone in this galaxy, so the Milky Way might prove a bridge too far. With regard to the solar system, there is the matter of weapons in space. Over the past 40 years, no one in the U.S. has devoted more time to preventing that fiasco than Carol Rosin. Much of her work has been international. When you examine that work, you might be surprised to learn most governmental efforts to prevent the weaponization of space are outside the U.S. and Russia. Is leading on the issue. Hmm. As near as I can tell, it's just conflict and war. Mm. I like skirmish, though. Well, skirmish is part of a war. A skirmish is a small battle in a war. And then when I, it's like all of them, all those other little things like are parts of the war. That makes sense, too. Um, disclosure is coming, and a high priority on the post-disclosure to-do list must be ending human wars in space or anywhere else. So that's an initiative going on outside of that. Then we get to come on to uh, Stephen Greer's here. Stephen McGreer. <laughs> Richard Greer's. <laughs> Richard Greer. So this is... Has he been uh, crying on TV again lately? This is, he uh, disappeared, didn't he? Isn't he uh, uh, disappeared right now? Yeah. I know. Read the section of this paper on the environment. So this is from Dr. Greer's paper, Implications of Disclosure for the Environment, World Peace, Poverty, and the Human, nature, human Future. So he says here, we have identified insiders and scientists who can prove in open congressional hearings that we do in fact possess classified energy generation and anti-gravity propulsion systems capable of completely and permanently replacing all forms of currently used energy generation and transportation systems. These devices access the ambient electromagnetic and so-called zero-point energy state to produce vast amounts of energy without any pollution. Such systems essentially generate energy by tapping into the ever-present quantum vacuum energy state, the baseline energy from which all energy and matter is fluxing. All matter and energy is supported by this baseline energy state, and it can be tapped through unique electromagnetic circuits and configurations to generate huge amounts of electricity from space-time all around us. These are not perpetual motion machines, nor do they violate the laws of thermodynamics. They merely tap an ambient energy field around us to generate energy. So he says this means that such systems do not require fuel to burn atoms or split or fuse. They do not require central power plants, transmission lines, and the related multi-trillion dollar infrastructure required to electrify and power remote areas of India, China, Africa, and Latin America. These systems are site-specific. They can be set up at any place to generate the needed electricity or energy, I should say. Essentially, this constitutes the definition, the definitive solution to the vast majority of environmental problems facing our world. So, I mean, the reason I, I read that, which all these institutional scientists would probably think is just wacko or crazy. But I mean, we had, we had that uh, show uh, thrive Two on, right. We had, Ooh, um, what's his name? Um, Proctor yeah. gamble, gamble, gamble. Yeah. What's his first name? I don't know. Now I'm drawing a blank. I'll find out. I can't believe you it. Keep going. Yeah. But anyways, I mean, he talked about it. They, they had so many people submitting their, their ideas and that what they consider solutions for this free energy system. And they had a few great examples in their movie. I mean, I think this is where like, you know, why can't institutional science look closer to what's going on on the planet right now? I mean, I do agree with going out and looking in space too, but there's stuff going on really close to us. You know, if I type thrive into Google, it doesn't even come up. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. 
the Fatipe and Thrive movie. Foster Gamble was uh, you got it. Was Foster Gamble. We had him on the show. I know it was a fantastic chat. I mean, yeah, and they were super guy. not political. I mean, they they did a great job on that movie. Better than we did. Thrive too. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. I just saw a, a newsletter come out about that recently. Actually, 2011. Foster Gamble, Dwayne Elgin, Nassim Harriman, Stephen Greer. Yeah, but that's the original 2011. That's the original original one. Yeah. yeah. Thrive 2 2020. This is what it takes. Yeah. So this is the late. So then the next we have the, uh, the ET contact teams on this map. So this is from actually past guest of ours as well. Um, Costa Macrius. Do you remember that? ET let's talk. So this is another sort of faction of the global, like looking for ETs. Has like, he been on the show? Yeah, Costa was on a long time ago too. I get so this is the, from this guy. Yeah, so, yeah, the yeah, global yeah. CE5 initiative event. So he's got a map here, and he's saying, "Look at look at our star people contact teams for the global CE5 initiative ET contact event. Now in our twelfth year of contact with star people." So he says the people's disclosure movement continues growth with this month's. Initiative ET contact event for December 4th. We already have 50, 50 teams participating globally. So he says, we are making star people contact everywhere this month. Canada, Hawaii, Thailand, Brazil, France, South Africa, Portugal, England, Brazil, Netherlands, Australia, USA, and more. So he's asking, obviously, share this message with people. We asked, uh, I, won't, I won't read that. Talking about lockdown laws. <laughs> The map of global teams is refreshed daily. Come and see our event where others are displayed. You and members of our global contact community will better appreciate our widespread family. The map contains optional contact info so people can connect. So, I mean, there's, there's their movement here as well. They're talking about like, you know, has grown to a million people in a hundred plus countries. Um, gratitude to you all who have helped us. And then there's the, obviously the Greer CE5, the CSETI kind of movement as well. I mean, he's been advertising that all over, doing some of the same night. So, I mean, it's interesting, you know? How, how, how come this never gets any real mainstream attention, right? I mean, people have experiences. Now, I don't know if it's ET or not, but it deserves, it deserves investigation. Why don't you investigate it? I have. And there's a <laughs> phenomena there. You're a, you're a MUFON member but in like, good standing. But like Avi said, right? They need... they. The Money. human observation isn't enough. Nah, it's not. It's nothing. You know, it's nothing, right? It's nothing. No, it'll. it'll Which is what I've been saying for years. Whereas you argue, it's uh, everything. There's enough anecdotal it's enough for evidence. Me. Well, it is because when you, that's okay. That's so I bet a you great Abby point. doesn't believe in Bigfoot either. And if he saw one, he'd shoot it. We should have asked him. We stopped asking people that. I don't like that question. Not, you don't. No. But because I mean, more people choose my side. That's why. But the overwhelming amount of anecdotal evidence has to mean something. It's not, it? It, yeah. It's once it gets to a point that it does, it's not just one even person, that, right? It's thousands of people experiencing even something. That, that there's like millions of our peers who think that me and you should be put in a camp for not getting vaccines right now. You still trust these motherfuckers? <laughs> not like, no, nah, and I'm not calling out anyone that's had an experience on this, but I just, I'm talking about humans as a whole. You know what I mean? We're like notoriously untrustworthy. They did. We just keep letting me down. We just keep letting me down. <laughs> yeah, I can't really argue that. It's a good point. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that for this episode, I could use this jingle. 
profound quote of the oh, wait. week. I thought it was, uh, yeah, stop that. I want uh, this one. Down and gray, I'm going Did you got one? Or? I assumed you would have a no, UFO quote it's for the Abbey. I found UFO quote of the week. Your quote of the week is not a UFO quote for the Abbey episode? Words to ponder and critique. I've done thousands of them already. I've just read a whole bunch of them. found UFO quote of the week. Well, what was the quote you did have Shoot to up? the stars. That's my quote. What quote did you have lined up for today? Well, I hadn't got it lined up yet, really. What? I can find it. But you've got exactly. months of Dungeons and Dragons planned out. I haven't quite got to the quote for today's episode, though. Well, because I, I, I can't get everything open all at once. I'd have, you know, so many screens open. I can see here. On, I got a handy one coming up here. But this one doesn't Do you really... you call it handy because you're using your phone? Yeah. Okay. Okay, who, who did this? Today we live so cowed under the bombardment of this intellectual artillery that hardly anyone can attain to the inward detachment that is required for a clear view of this, of the monstrous drama. The willpower to operate under a pure democratic disguise has finished off its masterpiece so well that the object's sense of freedom is actually flattered by the most thoroughgoing enslavement that has ever existed. This is not about UFOs. Charlie Robinson? Oh, it might be. It might be. You think the aliens made us the slaves? Is it Charlie Robinson? No, it's uh, Oswald Spengler. I don't know who that is. Yeah, you know, we know who that is, but not off the top of my head. Ah, so no UFO quote, eh? Well, I guess I jumped the shark. <laughs> no, you didn't jump the shark. You jumped the gun. It's not the same thing? No, it's not the same thing. No. Oh. Mm. I can't keep up. Yeah. The balls that... This is near ball in court. <laughs> I had it in the in the pike. <laughs> For all intents and purposes. <laughs> uh, Didn't we do a show about I, all those before? Yeah, we uh, we kind of talked about them not too long ago, yeah. It was probably end up being like six years ago. Do you want me to read an email from uh, Isfin? Who's that? He's a listener. So just like, what kind of jingle would I play? Uh, Is it a synchro? No. Just mm. a thank you, like feedback, you know, that kind of stuff. If more you supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> 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 the Let's hear it. Hi, I just wanted to say a quick thank you for all the efforts you guys make to create the amazing content. I am a new and happy plus subscriber. So actually, we'll talk about that. That'd be Grey America Outlawed. I think we did already, right? We did already. But that's for the second Reiterate. half of the Outlawed's. And it's just 55 an, episodes. It's an RSS feed you can copy and you get the second half of all the previous ones we've done. 55 episodes. Uh, something I just spotted on RT.com. We're almost at a year old. Okay, I here's guess. a here's a Come quote. February. Okay, here's a quote for you. What? We're we're in it's the in the email. middle. Of, I know oh. it's in the quote. So he's doing your job now. Yeah, in I'm a, gonna send him your check. In a, <laughs> in a couple of years, my hope is that the only time you will really have to think about the virus is when you get your COVID and flu vaccine every fall. That's how it's gonna transition. 
Which, I mean, is best case scenario, really. Let's be honest. That's the everybody's not going to die scenario. Yeah. And uh, who who said that? Whoever wrote the email? No, it's a oh. quote from somebody. Robert Kennedy. Bill Gates. What? Yeah. In a couple of years, my hope is that the only time you'll really have to think about the virus is when you get your COVID and flu vaccine every fall. When did he say that? Uh, I don't know. Not too long ago on RT. Motherfucker. I guess the guy told us everything within the last two words of the sentence. What a bastard. I could go on forever about what. This is how- my original prediction. Our original yeah, prediction. Yeah. They want to jab the healthy people all the on time. On a global scale. All the time. I could go on forever about what and how we see from Europe, how we are fed up with all this shit and it's not just COVID. I'm a Hungarian living in Austria, by the way, blackmailed into taking the job. 8,000 euro fine and possible imprisonment. I guess next year it's the kid's turn. I really admire you lot in Canada for using your French DNA to rebel. (laughs) Are we rebelling? (laughs) Yeah. I kind of, I replied to him about that. The old continent is filled with sheep. The EU's head was a drunk, and it's filled with a communist, communists that are worse than Nazis. Our borders leak from all sides. Illegal immigrants have more rights than we do. Soros and co. fucked us from all angles. You two talked about a safe haven to move to. I am thinking about the same. Otherwise, the kids will not have a full li- live a full life. Well, as I said, I could go on forever and will not waste your time that you can to create your amazing content. Keep up the good work. Istvan. Istvan. Thanks, Istvan. Yeah. If I had to pick uh, something, I'd say Montana's still my spot. Yeah. I mean, Montana sucks. That's what I meant. Montana sucks. Don't look at Montana. Go to Texas. Look up the snake bros down there in Texas. Stay yeah, away. it's Stay that, away I mean, from Montana. There might be a couple states that are left. I mean, really, there's not. I mean, that really is seeming like they're they're the most secure from so far. I mean, I'm Ooh. not saying. You it's, think Montana? If all the states broke up, do you think Montana might invade Alberta for the oil? No, there's nobody there to invade them. You said there's more people in Calgary than Montana, so. Well, they still have a better army than we do. They have some pretty good bases there. And yeah. a bunch of nukes. Yeah. Like Montana could take just come over on in. Just come on no in. Problem. Just come on in. They just, just let him in. Just let him in. Just let him in and just take, just combine with them. Just like, Monta- right, come on in. Montalberta. Well, you might, you know, you could see weird shit like that start happening if the state started breaking up. It's the Alberta Tana. Alberta Tana. Montana, Alberta. Montalberta. No, it's just Montana. They're not going to give us something. <laughs> be like, no, no. <laughs> New Montana or something? Or? <laughs> You can be the Alberta province of Montana. That's it, buddy. That's it. All right. Show's over. Uh, We made it to 500 and however many episodes, and that's it. I'm just kidding. We got a bunch more episodes to go. We'll make it to 1,000, I think. Yeah. Maybe 2,000. Yeah, maybe 2,000. I don't think 10,000. We need the support to do it, though. We'll be dead before 10,000. Support because we want to get that far. Unless we were doing one every day. We might still be dead before 10,000. That'd be 30 years. Yeah, a show every day would take you 30 years to get to 10,000. Yeah. Is that right? I yeah, know. that's right. So you'd be 82. Do you see yourself podcasting at 82? All right, guys. Enjoy this amazing chat with Avi Loeb.
Avi Loeb, welcome to Grey America. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to join. You. Yeah, this will be this will be really fun. I mean, you know, we don't have uh, prominent scientists like yourself on very often. Uh, we have before, but uh, you know, your book Extraterrestrial was uh, was fantastic. The first signs of intelligent life beyond Earth. I mean, uh, I really like the open mindedness that you brought forward as a you know as a secular scientist to the book and all those projects that you're working on. So yeah, we got lots to talk about. Well, just think of me as a farm boy. I haven't changed much since my childhood. And the way I see science is the privilege of maintaining my childhood the curiosity. You know, one of the most vivid memories I have um, uh, as a kid was um, going to dinner and uh, asking a difficult question. And then uh, the adults in the room would pretend that they know the answer. And <laughs> it was obvious they didn't have a clue. And uh, that was the good situation. Uh, the worst situation was uh, when they would dismiss the question simply because they didn't know the answer. And I thought that by becoming a scientist, I would be yeah, able to follow, uh, to have this privilege of asking uh, difficult questions and seeking the evidence to answer them and that I will be surrounded by like-minded people. Because after all, in academia, you know, you have the concept of tenure where you have job security and you don't have to worry. You can take risks and uh, ask difficult questions. And to my surprise, uh, I still have adults in the room that they pretend they know much more than they actually know, and some that are dismissing a question to which they don't know the answer. And you're still asking the curiosity-like uh, questions. Exactly. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, what's the point? We live for such a short time. Let's just uh, talk substance rather than pretend, you know. Well, right away, listening to your book, I was thinking about how much philosophy, your love for philosophy in the beginning must have played a role in your open-mindedness as a scientist. Well, there were two things in my childhood that uh, shaped my career. One is indeed the, the, the interest in the big questions. And uh, I was mostly interested in philosophy. Um, but uh, then circumstances uh, led me into physics and eventually astrophysics. And uh, the second thing that uh, uh, was true of my, my childhood was that I grew up uh, on a farm and I used to collect eggs every afternoon and I became very much connected to nature, much more so than uh, to people. I mean, you might say people are part of nature, but not really. I mean, people often destroy uh, nature. And uh, I, I um, for example, since the pandemic started, I jog every morning at 5 a.m. in the company of birds, uh, ducks, uh, bunnies, and wild turkeys. And I enjoy that much more than... Um, yeah, the pre-pandemic uh, routine of uh, speaking with my colleagues at work. And um, uh, there is something really innocent and interesting about the nature. And space, by the way, is for me an extension of uh, exploring nature. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I liked how you use, uh, utilize some of your personal experiences from youth and, in, in, you know, analogical ways in uh, to your science and your experiences as a uh, as a scientist like the tree the tree for example speaking of nature your tree branch one i mean it's things like well, that it's, right it, it's interesting that you notice that because um, you know there were many people that uh, visited me after my book uh, came out i had about 1300 interviews but uh, <laughs> that was expected the uh, interviews for podcasts for TV, uh, radio, newspapers, magazines, and so forth. The thing that was not expected are the visitors that came to 
the porch of my home. I, I met with them in the porch because um, it was outdoors and they uh, they didn't have to wear a mask and I could sit with them on the rocking chair and uh, we would uh, discuss uh, why we might not be the smartest kid on the cosmic block. You know, that is the, um, the motive of my book. And um, there were some very interesting uh, visitors that came. We can talk about them, but Two of them, uh, when they came to the porch, uh, they said, uh, where is that branch uh, that uh, is mentioned in your book that uh, was broken and you put insulation tape around it? And, you know, I regard that as a symbol of helping young people when they, they are fragile. And um, and then uh, this branch now is the tallest uh, in that tree. And uh, even though people advised me to break it off, I put insulation tape and it's now still surrounding it uh, 15 years later. And um, I brought them to the branch. It's just next to the porch. And they took a selfie with it. <laughs> so <laughs> this branch is really a celebrity right now. Um, and um, there were other interesting visitors. You know, there was a couple that came, uh, brought me a gift from their daughter, their small daughter, that uh, it was a, a plant uh, of um, a, a red oak tree. And uh, I planted it in the backyard. And, uh, you know, she sent it as uh, a symbol of uh, trying to hope for a better future on Earth. And uh, I had uh, uh, very wealthy individuals that came to the porch, asked me questions about my book, and that uh, eventually uh, inspired them to contribute money to my uh, research fund, and I established the Galileo Project, on which we can talk uh, later. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's great. So did I mean, this... Did... I, I, should, I should tell you that there was one podcaster that said that he would have liked to be a fly on the wall of my porch to see all of these conversations about the Galileo Project and others. Oh, yeah, um, of course. You and, should mic you your know, porch. <laughs> the one advantage of a fly is that one of the visitors was the uh, principal investigator of the um, New Horizons mission to Pluto, and he's actually going to space next year. His name is Alan Stern, and he's a member of the Galileo Project. And uh, if that fly knew that, he could have snuck under the shirt of uh, Alan Stern and, and gone into space. You been the first fly in, in space. Uh, there must have been flies in space. Before. Was that was all that? Were you expecting all that media attention, that sort of circus when your book came out? When you know the scientist is is you know, I mean, I saw some of the headlines before we started here, and they're saying you know this oh this prominent science saying that something was uh, you know flew through our you know our system that was not made or not natural. And I mean, were you expecting that kind of circus or? Well, um, there were. Parts of it that I didn't expect. I mean, the book became a bestseller in many countries, was translated in 25 languages. Uh, and uh, uh, the public, uh, by and large, loved it. Uh, I had, uh, for, just to give an example, about a month ago, I participated in a forum uh, in the Washington National Cathedral. Uh, uh, it was about our future in space. And uh, uh, other attendees were the head of NASA, Bill Nelson, the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haynes, uh, Jeff Bezos from uh, Blue Origins, and um, 
a theologian from Durham University, David Wilkinson. And the one thing that struck me, I mean, of course, the discussion was interesting, but uh, after it ended, all of them left. And there was a long line of people waiting to speak with me. And I was very moved by it because uh, it took me half an hour to speak with the 50 people that stood in line. And they basically wanted to say how inspired they are by uh, this kind of a scientific project to search for um, technological equipment from another civilization in space, something that was never done before. And, you know, there is this uh, poem by Robert Frost about uh, taking the road not taken. He went to the woods and saw two roads and one of them was not taken. He took it and that made all the difference for him. For me, taking the road not taken has a great advantage because there might be some low-hanging fruit and because nobody took that road, uh, that fruit may still be there. Nobody picked it up. So uh, um, the advantage of establishing the Galileo project along a path that nobody else took is that we might find some low-hanging fruit. Yeah. What do you think about, uh, about NASA? Do you think, you know, they get, they get accused of all sorts of tomfoolery over there and doctoring pictures and stuff like that. Did you get any sort of sense of that? Or do you think they're, they're just as curious as we are? Well, the head of NASA, Bill Nelson, explicitly said uh, in early June, around a, a few weeks before the director of national intelligence delivered the report to the U.S. Congress about unidentified aerial phenomena. So Bill Nelson said, uh, you know, that when he was in Senate, in the uh, senator, he actually looked at this data and um, much of it is classified, and uh, and he thinks that. Uh, uh, scientists should look into this and, and figure out the nature of these objects that we don't understand. He could not understand. And uh, that to me is uh, very true. I mean, uh, I resonated with, with his uh, thinking and as a result established the Galileo project. And I think that uh, as the leader of NASA, he pretty much sets uh, the tone. And I think uh, in the coming uh, months and years, this subject will uh, not be ridiculed the way it was in the past and will deserve um, attention the way it should. Uh, because if the government says there are objects in the sky that we don't fully un understand, you know, scientists should, should find out what these objects are. And, you know, it's like a fishing expedition. It could be that uh, all of the fish will be sardines, things that are either made by nature or made by humans. And if so, so be it. Uh, that's, a, that's one of the objectives of the Galileo project. We plan to build uh, telescope systems that would uh, basically get a high-resolution image of objects that are not birds, not drones or airplanes that, that look different, and, um, and also track them in a, way, in a scientific way. And the data will be open. It will not be classified. And um, the only reason I was able to establish this project uh, a few months ago was uh, because people uh, gave me donations that allow, by now we have about a hundred scientists engaged in this project. Wow. And the second part of this, this project, I should say, Galileo project is uh, that um, we will look for objects uh, that enter the solar system from outside within the orbit of the earth that look weird and they are called interstellar objects. And the first example for those is Oumuamua, this object discovered in 2017 on which uh, my book is based. And that, that is the second part. And the goal is to 
it's sort of like going on a date with someone you liked, but uh, you never see that person again and you want to find a similar person. And so we are trying to date uh, uh, another Oumuamua. <laughs> and that's the second part of the Galileo project. And uh, hopefully, you know, in the coming years, we'll have enough funding. We we need about $100 million for the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena project. And so far, we have $2 million, And I hope that we will get there. That's yeah, we'll write a check. What... Uh, <laughs> Can you just give us a quick rundown of exactly what that event was that took place that, that you're, you're talking about for those of us yeah, that might so not be aware? The, the object that I mentioned, discussed in my book is, is called the Oumuamua because it was discovered in Hawaii by a telescope called Panstars. And uh, Oumuamua means in the Hawaiian language, uh, a scout. It was the first object that we discovered near Earth that came from outside the solar system. And we knew that it came from outside because it moved too fast to be bound to the sun. And then astronomers said, that, well, it's probably a comet, just like the rocks that we have seen before in the solar system that are covered with ice. And when they get close to the sun, they evaporate, you see a cometary tail. The only problem is there was no cometary tail around this object, no gas or dust surrounding it. So it was definitely not a comet of the type that we have seen. And then, uh, as uh, it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And that meant that it has a very extreme shape, most likely flat, pancake-like, because uh, the, the reflected light changed uh, in a way that uh, resembles the reflection from a flat object at the 90% confidence. Uh, and then uh, the object was also pushed away from the sun, uh, and because there was no outgassing, no evaporation of it, the only explanation I could think of is that it's the reflection of sunlight that is pushing it. Uh, and then I, at that point, I suggested that, you know, because it has to be very thin, like a sail, so that it's pushed by sunlight, uh, it must, might be artificial. It might have been produced by another civilization. And uh, that's what led to this... Uh, uh, pushback from the scientists. and um, But then a year ago, we found another object with the same telescope. We found another object that looks unusual, that was pushed by reflecting sunlight and had no cometary tail. The same qualities as Oumuamua. Pushed by, uh, like, like, like that's its propulsion? No, so there was no evidence for propulsion. There was no evidence for gas coming out of it. And uh, the only explanation I could think of is that it reflects sunlight and then being pushed by that, you know, just like nudged. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this new object, 2020 SO, was also uh, pushed by sunlight and had no cometary tail. And then uh, within a few weeks, the astronomers realized, oh, it's actually a rocket booster that was launched by NASA in 1966. And we know that it's artificial and had the thin walls, and that's why it was pushed by reflecting sunlight. So um, we know that we produced 2020 SO, this object from a year ago. We don't know who produced Oumuamua. And that was moving faster, right? The Oumuamua? Yes, because uh, 2020 SO came from Earth, and so it was moving relatively slowly. I mean, it was bound to the sun, and... Um, 
The other one, uh, Oumuamua, was not bound to the sun. It came from outside. So it came from outside the solar system, right? That's, outside the yeah. solar system. Definitely not from us. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of going to ask you what the definition of that inter- interstellar object was, and you just you just answered that. Well, the, yeah, yeah, the definition is yeah. that it moves between stars, that right. it's not bound to any particular right. star. Okay, okay. And of okay. course, you could have uh, rocks that are doing that. You know, the solar system extends halfway to the nearest star, and there are rocks left over, and just like uh, Lego uh, building blocks um, that were left over from the construction project of the planets. And uh, that's called the Oort cloud that goes halfway to the nearest star. And so if a, a star passes near the solar system, it can easily dislodge some of these rocks into interstellar space. And you expect some interstellar rocks uh, to come from the outer, the outskirts of other planetary systems like the solar system. But uh, Oumuamua didn't look like those rocks. That's the, the issue. And um, so we want to find another one and then uh, fly near it and take a close-up photograph because they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I would need to write the book if we had an image. So that was in 2017. Uh, How close was that to the the New York Times coming out with the first big article about the Tic Tac? Like, was that before that or after that? Well, it was around the same time. But, so you uh, kind of got lost in the in the hoopla of all that, probably. Well, right? honestly, at well, first I thought we were talking about that for a minute because yeah, no. because I come in, um, I come cold. in blank, I come in cold. I don't read the book, or I just come in without any background so that I can sort of take it in and ask those questions. And for, for at the beginning, I thought that we were talking about that. Yeah, TikTok. I was wondering. About, I was wondering so about the, the timing. You know, it seemed very yeah, coincidental. It, it was a complete coincidence because the New York Times was talking about. You know, the, the fact that there are objects identified by military personnel that uh, the government knows about. And the one thing that um, resulted from that was um, uh, the report to Congress on the on June 25th this year uh, that um, uh, in, in part inspired the Galileo project that, that I established because it has a branch associated with uh, trying to figure out the nature of these objects that the the government doesn't really know what they are. And I should say that uh, just this week, uh, uh, the, the, the National Defense Bill uh, in the U.S. is, is being finalized. And uh, it seems like it, it will have a recommendation to establish an office uh, in government that will look into all the data that the government collected on unidentified aerial phenomena. And that's really the very first time that's something that, Congress uh, recommends doing that. And uh, I think the most important um, uh, aspect of that would be that the subject, instead of being ridiculed, will will be taken more seriously. Uh, And obviously, you know, many people in government do that uh, because it's a matter of concern. If you have objects flying in the sky that you don't fully understand, you worry about national security. But if it's not produced by humans... Uh, it's not a matter of national security. It's an international matter. True. All the data, though? I mean, let's hope they go through all the data, but they've been accumulating data uh, no, for a few decades. Depending on who you ask, there's been a lot of data right, collected. Right. I mean, you know? we, we, we have to keep in mind that uh, it might be, it's very likely to be a mixed bag, that there are all kinds of 
compartments. Uh, data of different quality, of different objects, uh, some of which are natural, some of which are human-made. But the point is, even if there is good evidence for one object that is not human-made and not natural, that by itself will change the future of humanity. So, so it's really important to check each and every case. And the fact that most cases will have some mundane explanation, you know, would not mean much. Uh, it's just like, um, you know, in the case of Oumuamua, after that, there was another object discovered that looked like a comet from interstellar space. And it was given the name Borisov because it was discovered by a Russian amateur astronomer. And uh, my colleagues asked me, okay, it looks like the second object discovered appears to be a comet of the type that we have seen before. Doesn't it convince you that Oumuamua is natural? And I said, you know, when you walk down the beach and you see a plastic bottle and uh, you know that it's artificial. And if after that you see a rock, it doesn't make <laughs> the plastic bottle a rock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, cause this does bring up the, the, the importance of trying to find near earth objects as well that are going to hit the earth. Right. I mean, is that part, is that a whole separate uh, science or is that something that you guys will be taking part of as well? Because I mean, Looking back now, I mean, there, there's a bunch of theories that the Younger Dryas was caused by or partly caused or accelerated by cometary impact. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, like I was going to ask you even, oh, what if Oumuamua hit the earth? What would happen? Like how, it's hard to imagine. I think you said it was approximately maybe 10 meters wide. Um, well, not not sure how, not sure how thin it, oh, 100 meters wide. Yeah, it was roughly the size of a football field. And yeah, uh, yeah, right. in terms of uh, the thickness, we don't know. I mean, yeah. if it was indeed uh, pushed by reflecting sunlight, it had to be less than a millimeter thick, uh, very thin. Um, but the one thing um, I, sh um, I should mention is that it was discovered because of the fear from impact uh, by a, a rock. Uh, as you know, 66 million years ago, dinosaurs were roaming on earth, you know, they, they were dominant relative to their environment. They were very proud of themselves and they, they were eating grass and didn't really look up. And then a big rock, uh, the, the size of Manhattan Island hit the ground and tarnished their ego trip. And uh, so since then we know that there is a risk from rocks hitting earth. And uh, there, even though that rock was uh, you know, the size of Manhattan Island, uh, we are worried even about smaller rocks than that. And uh, in 2004, Congress tasked NASA to look for all objects bigger than the size of a football field um, uh, that may hit the Earth, 90% uh, of them. And um, uh, one reason that the telescope that discovered the Oumuamua was built, it's called PANSTAR, is to search for objects that may hit the Earth. These are called near-Earth objects. And uh, it was constructed for that purpose. And there is another telescope uh, that within two years will become operational. Its name is the Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile. And that would find about 60% of all objects bigger than the size of a football field that could potentially uh, come close to Earth. And so we are going uh, two-thirds of the way towards the congressional task. But um, the point is that PANSTAS was constructed to look for objects of that size uh, from the reflection of sunlight. And then it discovered an interstellar object, Oumuamua, even though it was not you know, coming very close to Earth. It 
it was within a, a fifth of the Earth-Sun separation. Um, but at the same time, it um, obviously surveyed the sky and looked for other objects. By the way, um, you know, there is this tale about uh, a fisherman that went to sea and uh, came back and said, uh, I, re- I discovered the new law of nature. All fish are bigger than two inches. And uh, someone asked him, what is the size of the holes in your fishing net? <laughs> and he said, two inches. So um, that illustrates the fact that, you know, if you have big holes in your fishing net, you will not catch any fish. And so Panstas was really the very first observatory that surveyed the sky and could see objects the size of a football field passing within the orbit of the Earth around the sun, just from the reflection of sunlight. And um, that means that before that, you know, before... Um, 2010, we didn't have the capability of seeing something the size of a football field uh, or smaller. And there could be a lot of objects smaller than that passing near Earth and we wouldn't even notice. We never sent a spacecraft as big as a football field, you know, to space. So, So the point is, we are pretty ignorant. And, you know, if you go back 70 years, uh, Enrico Fermi, a very famous physicist, you know, was having lunch in, in Los Alamos and he asked uh, a question. He said, well, it looks likely that we are not alone. Probably, you know, there are other planets like ours. But if so, where is everybody? And I think that's a very presumptuous question. It's just like sitting at home and saying, nobody is knocking on my door, therefore I don't have neighbors. (laughs) That's not the right way to approach it. You have to look through your windows and search. And, um, you know, only now we have the the survey telescopes that allow us to search for things as big as a football field passing nearby. And by the way, if they move much faster than Oumuamua was moving, like if they move at a fraction of the speed of light, we wouldn't even pay attention to them because the astronomers would say, oh, this is just a fluke. It moves too fast. So my point is, you know, we're not really searching. And um, and that's what the Galileo project is trying to do. What do you think that if it's something less than a millimeter thick and it's like 100 meters long, so do you think it's some sort of debris or some sort of a probe or what do you think we're dealing with here? Yeah, so these are exactly the possibilities. You know, you can imagine that it's, um, you can imagine it's the surface layer of a, a spacecraft that was torn apart. You know, that's one example, or some some something that is defunct, not working anymore. But um, another possibility is that you know it's a receiver that is tumbling and collecting information, and um, you know because we didn't uh, get enough data on this object we don't really know what it is and and by now it's gone you know it's a million times fainter than it was closer to the sun and we can't really see it we cannot chase it it's moving too fast relative to our rockets so what we need to do is find more of the same you know and when i go to the kitchen and i see an ant i usually get alarmed because there must be many more ants around so there should be more objects like it and we just need to search and with the Vera Rubin Observatory, we'll find many more, I'm sure. And and then the, the key would be to send a, a spacecraft with a camera that will pass nearby and take a close-up photo. Do we have because the it, tech for that now? To like, if because I guess you'd see it coming soon enough that you'd be ready for it. Is that the idea? Yeah. So that's the plan that we are 
trying to make uh, in the Galileo project. And the issue is that it will really cost about a billion dollars to have um, a, a space mission of this type. Bezos and, It's sort of, you know, it's very expensive. So it's just like uh, going on a date and uh, trying to make a decision whether the person you are going with will be your partner for life or uh, you will have an offspring with. And, <laughs> and you know, that, that having an offspring is a, a really a, a very tedious task. You want someone that has good uh, genetic uh, makeup and someone that will be a good companion. And, you know, you need to collect enough information before you make such a decision. That, you know, the other day, a couple of days ago, I uh, was jogging early in the morning and I saw uh, four pairs of ducks in a very narrow channel swimming and, and playing with each other. It looked like they're not dancing, but they're actually sort of wrestling. And, and it was clear that they're trying to decide whether to partner you know, to, to, to select what, you know, these pairs were selecting whether to mate with each other. And, um, and it, it reminded me of the Galileo project because, um, you know, it's a difficult decision whether to run the, uh, you know, you can rephrase uh, Hamlet's question instead of uh, to be or not to be, you can say to rendezvous or not to rendezvous. That's a billion dollar question you see so uh, um, we have to be very selective and we want to collect enough information that will demonstrate that the next Oumuamua indeed is weird it's not a comet it's not an asteroid it looks unusual and therefore we want to rendezvous with it and uh, to do that we will send a spacecraft that we have ready uh, with a camera uh, it will be expensive but we hope to to be able to do that so in the coming months we will start working on the design of the space mission. And um, uh, this is the more expensive component of the Galileo project. The, the other part is looking at unidentified aerial phenomena. And for that, we will just build telescope systems that you know are on Earth and look around. And the first among them actually is uh, will be assembled in the coming months on the roof of the, uh, the Harvard College Observatory. Um, so um, that's something I'm very excited about that in the coming months, we'll start to put together the first telescope system. That's great. I mean, I was going to say that must be uh, in some ways that decision is harder since the government is acknowledging this phenomenon and this soft disclosure, because it's, they're kind of saying, Hey, there's something here right in our backyard. So it must be harder to go, you know, outside the yard and explore the wilderness of space when you've got, apparently a phenomenon going on right here. I mean, and that's kind of what the UFO community would always argue is like, Hey, cause it is when you've looked into UFOs for so long, um, it's, it is, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to hear the scientists still like Fermi and, and these guys, you know, where are they? Well, there's thousands of people that say they're seeing stuff and making contact. And yet you're searching way out there for stuff, you know? Well, you see the the problem for many years was that the scientific community ridiculed the subject and ignored it. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to say, you know, and I think it, it all echoes what the, uh, Carl Sagan uh, said. He said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary uh, evidence. And I don't like the that. problem with that is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you say, well, we don't want to discuss this subject and you are not funding the search, the, the scientific research into this, then you will not find the extraordinary evidence and therefore you will still claim that there is no extraordinary evidence. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
And uh, I think that there should be a supplement to Sagan's uh, statement, which says extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. You need to fund the search, otherwise you wouldn't find anything. And uh, that's what we are trying to do with the Galileo project. And um, and it's the, really the very first time that the team of scientists, more than 100 scientists, comes together to do a purely scientific research project. You see, before that, you had reports from the government. Uh, other people looked into the reports. Uh, some of the uh, people studied the report. But nobody established a scientific research program that will you know, assemble new data that is open to the public using state-of-the-art instrumentation, using telescopes, looking for the answers through telescopes. That's the motto of the Galileo project. And that's what we are doing now. So I think, you know, hopefully it will, at the very least, change the atmosphere in the way that the scientific community regards this subject, because now we are collecting we will be collecting scientific data of the highest quality, so nobody can dismiss it and say, oh, it's just military personnel, eyewitness testimonies. <laughs> this will be open data that anyone can look at. And uh, uh, that's at the very least. But if we find evidence for something unusual, we will write scientific papers about it and, and uh, try to bring it to the mainstream. Have you guys? Have you ever thought, especially maybe someone like yourself that's a little more curious and open-minded, um, that there is thousands of groups all over the world that are actually like sort of meditating and looking up at the stars and they see stuff. You know, they think they make contact. Now, I don't know if that's ET or some interdimensional thing or whatever. I've experienced it myself, but maybe one of those hundred scientists or a few of them can go out and try and experience that with people. <laughs> well, I should say that you see in physics. If we want to to convince uh, the mainstream in science that these things are real, we cannot do it with using humans as detectors. That doesn't work. So <laughs> you cannot write a scientific paper saying, someone we saw this. Me, yeah. I witnessed something. This does not hold water. You need to use instruments in order to for it to be scientific. That's, that's the standard folklore. Now, I'm not saying that uh, humans cannot uh, identify things that are real. I'm just saying that although it holds water in, in the courtroom, you know, you can have eyewitness testimonies that lead to putting a person in jail. You know, that, that happens in, in the courtroom. Uh, in the scientific uh, uh, research uh, folklore, it's not a, an acceptable piece yeah. of evidence. And you cannot write a scientific paper based on what humans are reporting. What you what you need to do is use instruments that are recording the the evidence, so anyone can look at, at that. And and that's um, for that you you need you need to use, for example, in the context of the Galileo project, um, telescopes with cameras that will take a video of the sky, that will uh, record audio, you know, sound from the sky. And uh, then we can analyze it. And, you know, if we see an object, it's not a philosophical question. If we see an object that has screws and bolts on it, and if we have a megapixel image of it, and it doesn't say made in China, doesn't say made in Russia, it says made on exoplanet Y, (laughs) then that's it. You don't need any, it's not a matter of debate anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I wasn't thinking that. I was kind of half joking. 
only half joking, but and not for data collection, but just for a more of a like inspiration or like, hey, look what yeah, I, I you know. People can like, get their inspiration in many different yeah. ways, yeah. and uh, I have no issue with that. But I think uh, what's important right now is to collect evidence and data that would bring us to an understanding of what unidentified aerial phenomena are, what objects like Oumuamua. Uh, are. And um, as I said, you know, the mistake that a lot of people make, including a lot of scientists, is to assume that they know the answer before they collect the evidence. And again, it reminds me of those dinners as a kid, where the adults in the room would pretend that they are respectable, they know everything, and they would give some answers that do not make sense. And the only way to find the answer is the way a kid finds the answer. A kid goes and tries to 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 get to do the evidence himself, on, yeah. on on yeah. on his or her own yeah. by you know and sometimes kids get bruised as a result but but at least they know it for sure from their own experience yeah. what's going on you know they don't need someone to tell them what's going on yeah. and that's the way science should be done you know by collecting evidence and figuring out what it is yeah yeah so I mean you do that's one of the things I loved about your book is you're you're pretty hardcore against the do- dogmatic the scientism that's happening right now, you know, the dogma, the the people that you can even see it with young people coming up and they, they don't necessarily want to follow this sort of curious route because it may not be as easy for them to get jobs right. in the future. I mean, there's all kinds of examples you use, which are, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, but, but you, it's not just that I, I wanted to emphasize. There is another uh, element here, which is, let me give you an example. The, um, the mainstream of physics uh, invested $10 billion in an accelerator oh, yeah. called the yeah. Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Uh, and the main goal was to discover new particles that are called the supersymmetric particles. And, you know, it was accepted by the mainstream that, you know, these particles might be around the corner, we might find them, and they convinced each other that we should invest $10 billion to search for them. And we searched and didn't find any. So uh, that was accepted as part of the mainstream, $10 billion to search for those particles. But in addition, I mean, it's it's obviously a matter of uh, having those funding agencies listening to the advice of committees made of mainstream scientists that are building consensus among themselves, okay? Like for multi uni- like multiple universe, uh, dark matter, string theory. Yeah. I mean, all these things, instead of putting their money where you are, which is actually like a tangible thing. Yeah, and uh, but my point is that uh, there are other things to consider. For example, how interested is the public in the question that you are trying to resolve? You know, the public funds science. We need to listen to the public. The second is... You know, how's, uh, what would be the impact of finding what you are aiming to find on society? You know, and then the third thing is, um, you know, how, what is the magnitude of the improvement in our knowledge of reality? And if you include these uh, in, in consideration, then it's clear that uh, looking for equipment produced by other civilizations the, uh, in space is much more consequential. It's much more important than looking for supersymmetric particles, you know? And nevertheless, for example, even the Galileo project that was just announced has funding that is two parts in 10,000 of the funding of the Large Hadron Collider. So you ask yourself, how did we get there? 
How is it possible that a subject that the public cares a lot about is not funded at all, being ridiculed by the scientific community who decides to pursue things that end up not being real? Like supersymmetry is not around the corner. We've, we invested $10 billion in that. And the searches for dark matter, hundreds of millions of dollars. We didn't find specific types of particles that were proposed. And uh, my point is, uh, given the public's interest, given the anomalies of Oumuamua or unidentified aerial phenomena, I think it's time, the time is right to invest funds, you know, a billion dollars, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in the search for objects produced by other civilizations because we have some tentative clues that maybe are quite intriguing and uh, we want to find out what these objects are. And, um, you know, obviously we will not have extraordinary evidence that they are something else unless we put the money into the search. And to me, it's a matter of common sense. You know, I don't feel myself as uh, in an elevated position relative to the public, or I just speak what sounds to me like common sense. And I think the public very much understands that. It's just that the academic world has time, uh, difficult time following it. Well, we need people like you to bridge the, you know, bridge between the public and the academic world and, and the scientific community. I mean, that's always what's frustrated me about the UFO phenomena is not that the government acknowledges anything. It's the scientific community and the academia that acknowledge that there's a mystery. They don't, you know, you don't have to know the answers, just that there's some questions to be asked here. So and not only questions, but we have the instruments that we can use to find the answer. You well, see. So why not? Uh, we are buying them with the Galileo project. We are buying them off the shelf. These are, uh, ah. we need to assemble them in a special way because, for example, there are observatories that astronomers constructed that are looking at the sky. So you may ask, why aren't they seeing UFOs? Well, the answer is simple. If a bird flies above an observatory that exists right now, nobody would track it. You know, they, uh, the astronomers would just ignore it. And what you need is a system that has. Uh, uh, first of all, looks at the entire sky, not in a narrow field, and and then tracks objects of interest, and then uh, zooms on them and tries to get a high-resolution image of them. And for that, you need also artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms to identify objects, to say whether it's a bird, a drone, or an an airplane, or something else. And uh, all of this was never developed before. So that's what the Galileo Project is trying to do. Well, you've also been involved in all these other sort of paradigm-changing initiatives. I mean, you, you also talked about the Black Hole Initiative in your book. And right. um, and you guys were, were trying to decide whether you can see a city like Tokyo if it was on Pluto. And, and I mean, the search for exoplanets is something else that might interest people if you give us an update on that. And then also the light sail thing. I mean, that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing that could really that seems very economical for what you're going to get out of it, the amount of resources to put into that, right? Yeah, well, let me give you another example. So the astronomy community every decade they decide, decides about its priorities. And one of the biggest priorities right now is uh, to look for uh, signatures of life in the atmosphere of other planets around other stars that may be habitable, maybe there is life on them, and you might want to look for oxygen or methane in the atmosphere that indicates life. And that's what everyone agrees on, and it motivates uh, future telescopes that will cost maybe $10 billion um, within a few decades, uh, maybe built in space. 
but my point is simple, and I wrote a paper about it uh, in 2015. Uh, in principle, if you find oxygen, it will not necessarily tell you that there is life because there are natural ways of making oxygen. Also, if you don't find oxygen, it doesn't tell you that there is no life there because the Earth in the first two billion years of its lifetime didn't have oxygen in the atmosphere and there was microbial life on Earth. And, and so uh, if you don't find oxygen, you know, even for Earth, there was a 50% chance that if you looked at Earth early on, you wouldn't find oxygen. So uh, it doesn't mean that there is no life. Uh, but if you find very complex molecules like CFCs, that uh, air conditioning systems or in that industries produce on Earth, these are the all the complex molecules that are destroying the ozone. Uh, that are in, associated with industrial pollution. So if you find industrial pollution on in the atmosphere of another planet, not only you know that there is life there, but you know that there, there is industrial life there. And what I'm saying is you put $10 billion towards a future telescope, why not discuss how uh, likely it is for you or how easy it is for this telescope to detect industrial pollution instead of oxygen. But for some reason, that is not being discussed. That is pushed to the sidelines and um, because it's considered speculative to discuss a possible industrial civilization. And I don't think that it's speculative because, you know, it's, it's arrogant on our behalf to think that we are special, unique. Whenever we thought that way, we were wrong. Uh, we thought that we are at the center of the universe, and that turned out to be wrong. We're not at the center of anything, actually. Uh, we thought that, um, you know, we uh, that the Earth-Sun system is really special, and that's wrong, actually. Half of the Sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation, so it's not unique or special. We are not privileged. And... Um, uh, you know, just thinking that we are the smartest kid on the block makes no sense to me. You know, it's just like my daughters thought that they are the smartest when they were at home. And then the, when they went to the kindergarten, they realized that, you know, there are smarter kids around. So so um, I, I don't think it makes sense for us to believe as, as the starting uh, assumption that, that uh, nothing like us exists out there. Instead, we should start from scratch and basically say, okay, well, we are not really special, unique. Let's just check. Let's just see if there, we sent out equipment to space, you know, in the form of spacecraft. Let's check if there was someone before us, let's say a billion years before us that sent equipment to space that we can find. Why is that regarded speculative? Why is that pushed to the sidelines relative to searching for supersymmetry that we've never found, searching for specific types of dark matter that we've never found, I argue these things are actually not very relevant for the daily lives of people, not very relevant for the future of our society. The dark matter will not be used for any, any gadget that we build on Earth. So if we find technological equipment from another civilization, you know, it might give us a, a, a look at our future. It might change the way we live, the way we aspire about going to space, the technologies we develop in response to what we find, you know, I would, you know, my wish is that we will find a gadget coming from another civilization. And I'll be able to push some, press some buttons on it. 
Yeah, and start. It'll change the paradigm of the whole planet. I mean, it'll it'll change everything, right? Like you you mentioned yeah. in your book, it'll create a whole bunch of new disciplines. You know, astro so how can, astro. How can we ignore that? Yeah. How, how is it possible? Not only ignoring that, but ridiculing the discussion in that. I I just find it. Uh, completely inappropriate, and that's why I wrote my book, and that's why I'm advocating for this cause. And how's your book come across to a lot of your peers in the scientific community? <laughs> well, the, many of them try to dismiss it. Um, I don't know how many read it, uh, <laughs> but um, the point is, uh, you know, I, I don't need to argue my case because when um, the mainstream scientific community tried to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua, there were four independent teams that came up with different explanations. Uh, one of them said, oh, it's probably a cloud of dust particles uh, that is a hundred times less dense than air. And the problem with that is if it were to get close to the sun, it would disintegrate because the material strength will not be uh, enough to keep it together uh, as it gets heated by hundreds of degrees. Uh, then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen. We've never seen anything like it. Um, and uh, moreover, hydrogen will evaporate very quickly. It will not survive the journey in interstellar space. Then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg, a chip of frozen nitrogen that was chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto around another star. And, and the problem there is there isn't enough nitrogen to accommodate enough chips such that Oumuamua will be one of them. So my point is, you know, if we... If all the explanations that people came up with for a natural origin involve something that we've never seen before, I rest my case. If it's something that we've never seen before, we might as well consider an artificial origin. And, you know, it's just like a caveman finding a cell phone. Uh, the caveman is used to playing with rocks all of his life. And he would think the cell phone must be just a rock of a type that he had never seen before. That's exactly the approach that my colleagues were taking. But if he would throw away the rock or the cell phone, uh, that would be the end of it. But if he will press a button and that would record his voice and press another button, it would record his image, then it will become clear that it's not a rock. And that's really what I hope to do with the Galileo project, get more evidence. Yeah, I'm glad you went into more details on the Oumuamua because, you you know, from the book, you get a sense of how much data you guys did have. I mean, I know you didn't have quite enough for proof, but you had enough to say it's not all of these things, you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I... I cited in my book about 200 uh, scientific papers that I wrote. And then one of the criticisms by a scientist, someone who calls himself a scientist, was that I cited papers that I wrote. <laughs> and I thought to myself, why would that be criticism? Because if I didn't cite any papers, then people would say what he's saying is not substantiated. Okay, so I'm substantiating what I say based on papers that I wrote. And then he's criticizing that as if I reference myself. <laughs> um, so the point is, you cannot win. If someone wants to uh, basically dismiss it, they can do it. I mean, Galile the reason we call it the Galileo Project is because four centuries ago, uh, there was a the first uh, uh, modern scientist, Galileo Galilei, who argued that the Earth moves around the sun. And the philosophers at the time thought that it's ridiculous, just like Oumuamua being an artificial object is ridiculous. 
So they put him in house arrest. And he said, look through my telescope and you will also understand what I'm arguing for. And they said, we don't need to look through your telescope. We know the answer. And they tried to prevent him from speaking to other people by putting him in house arrest. And today they would have canceled him on social media. And then what did they accomplish? <laughs> During their time, they felt very powerful and poor guy. He couldn't speak with anyone about what he found and so forth. Um, but four centuries later, here we are developing space missions based on our knowledge that the earth moves around the sun. So the fact that they insisted didn't change the motion of the earth around the sun. It only maintained their ignorance. Nobody remembers the names of those philosophers, but everyone remembers the name of Galileo. So my point is, reality is whatever it is. It doesn't need to be liked on Twitter. It's not a matter of popular popularity. I don't need the embracement, the endorsement of uh, my colleagues for something to be true. You know, if, we, if there are objects passing near Earth that came from another civilization, it doesn't matter what my colleagues say. All we need to do is collect enough evidence such that we, I would know for sure what they are, and I, that would be enough for me. I don't need to convince everyone, because if that's the reality we live in, it will not change. The fact that we bury our head in the sand will not change what's around us. The fact that we don't look through our windows will not change the fact that we have neighbors. Yeah. Do you have any questions there at all? What do you think? So if you had to make a prediction, do you think that with the, gen, with the, so the Galileo project and NASA sort of with their new stuff and the satellites looking for near earth objects and the Congress thing. They're, they're... Yeah. Do you think it's inevitable? Do you think like, do you, or do you think it's sort of just a, a waiting or do you think we'll get Tunguskid first or, or what do you think? I think that um, if we collect the data, you know, and the Galileo project is funded at the level that it needs and we get scientific data and perhaps the government introduces more transparency. I think, Within a decade or two, uh, we will learn a lot. And uh, it will just be a completely new realization. Now, it's possible that we will end up finding that another nation was much more sophisticated than we think, and that they produced all kinds of gadgets we've never known about, or that there are natural phenomena like Oumuamua was a nitrogen iceberg, something that we've never you know, considered before, and it appears to be very common. You know, there could be situations like that. We will find out. My guess is, if it looks weird, it will be weird. Speaking of weird, didn't they just see something weird on Mars? Or sorry, on the moon, on the far side of the moon? Uh, well, yeah, there was a report that the, the Chinese... Uh, spacecraft uh, that landed there uh, noticed something that looks uh, with a weird shape, but the, the image is very low, res poor resolution. So it could be like, a, it could be just a rock that is not fully resolved. You know, we need, they need to get closer <laughs> to, to figure out. What it is. Yeah. They need to get some high res pictures of those bases on the dark side of the moon. China doesn't have yeah, high so that, That's my point yeah. all along. That's just a knockoff. Uh, high resolution, a megapixel image will tell us what things are, you know, uh, it's it's completely pointless to argue 
because it's not a philosophical question. You just get a good resolution image. And using cell phones uh, to look at UAP, you know, is not really the best way to figure them out. What you want is a large enough telescope that will get us a, a crisp image. And that's what we're planning to put together. Yeah, it's just like when you take a when you see the moon or some other thing, you're thinking, oh, I'll take a great picture of that. And you take it and it's hardly on the phones. It just doesn't do it justice, you know? Yeah, because uh, it all, I mean, optics tells you that it all depends on the size of, of your the aperture of your camera. And cell phones have an aperture that is only a, a few millimeters in size. It's really small. And That's telescopes, you know, can be tens of centimeters, much bigger than that. Yeah. And, then you get much higher resolution image. Speaking of philosophical questions, what about like, what about like a past civilization? What if it was like, you know, from like some weird pre-Atlantean or pre-Diluvian, like anti-Diluvian Atlantean sort of, because isn't there, isn't there some weird, like what about that Black Knight thing? Isn't there like some sort of weird thing orbiting Earth that, that. The Black Knight satellite? Yeah. yeah. Is that real? Well, so that's another thing that, you know, if if you imagine that there might have been someone before us on Earth, uh, some adv- uh, advanced technological civilization, let's say that destroyed itself uh, more than 100 million years ago, we would never find evidence for it on the surface of the Earth, like in archaeological digs, because over periods of hundreds of millions of years, uh, geological activity uh, destroys anything on the surface and mixes it with the inside of the earth. So we won't be able to find it. But if they launched any equipment into space, it will still be there. So, you know, we if we search, we will not assume that uh, there is nothing. Uh, we will just look for whatever there is. And if they sent uh, equipment into space, we might find it. Among the 30,000 other pieces floating around up there? Didn't you mention that in your book? There's just one. <laughs> hey, wait, this one's not 30, ours. 30, <laughs> eh? But, you know, the, and another thing to keep in mind, the, mu- the moon is like a museum because it doesn't have geological activity. It doesn't have mixing. So, Okay, uh, so you mentioned we, the moon. I got to Survey the moon, we might find something. I got to ask you about the moon. Like, what about, because uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on with the moon, right? Like, the, the like, then maybe I'm wrong about some of this stuff, and you can correct me. You're probably more, you know more about this by, than me, but I've heard and researched myself and heard from some reputable people. And the, the obvious one is that the, the moon and the sun appear the same size in the sky, even though the sun's 400 times further uh, away. That's a coincidence. Yeah. So then what about, then the other one is the, uh, what is the other one? It's like, uh, it takes 27.3 days for the moon to do a full rotation. Right. And it, and the moon is 27.3% the size of the earth. (laughs) And it takes, and it takes three. I'll give you another one. Okay. Um, If you look at the, uh, the sunspots, they look very similar to the spots on um, the nearest uh, stars, um, uh, Alpha Centauri A and B, um, which are just like they have roughly the mass of the sun. And, uh, you know, uh, so there are some interesting uh, coincidences. Um, The way that uh, astronomers treat them is as coincidences. But I actually saw a scientific paper trying to explain, find a physical scientific reason for why the moon occupies roughly the same size in the sky 
as the as the sun uh, related to tidal forces but there could be an there could be a reason for that i'll give you one more mm-hmm. it takes uh 366.2 uh actually 25259 but 366.25 days for the earth to do a full orbit around the sun mm-hmm. or something and and the and the earth is 366 point two percent the size of the moon because <laughs> i go back and forth is it like a weird coincidence where because it's weird to have all these sort of things line up or are they rounding it sort of weird or is it like and then there's the 108 thing with those sort of things or is it just like it's just a bunch of nasa's a bunch of crazy occultists you know, you know what um if we fi- if if we make contact uh, encounter know. <laughs> a, a, another um, you know being we can ask them maybe they know if they're smarter than we are why why don't we ask them i think that's the great advantage of finding a smarter kid on your block because there are questions to which we don't have answers maybe they will have the answers so yeah, i will keep your question in mind and ask it uh, if we find them Hopefully they're benevolent. Well, why why aren't we looking closer at the moon? Like, why why can't I mean? You, we've got all these projects now. We want to go farther out, farther out, farther out. How come we're not setting up a base? Uh, around it would the moon? be worth it, right? Like you said, it's like a time capsule to start like busting no, some dust off and I mean, excavating. Yeah. So NASA has a plan uh, to go back to the moon uh, called Artemis, and uh, it was not realized yet, but. Um, yeah, having a base on the moon and surveying the surface of the moon uh, would be a, a worthwhile um, task. And, um, you know, you need to be close to the surface to see things. Uh, if you look at it from a distance, you can't see very small things. The trick is they got to take a bunch of, like, uh, people from Jersey and load them all up on the on the rocket, and then we'll film it all like a like a, it's got to be like a reality television. Because I feel like that's part of the problem is just like the general populace is just hard to convince us that you know it's worth all the money and all the effort. And and well, you don't need to send people; you can send the robots or or instruments that will just go. Over, I can think know, of some people. I could I could think of some people. We could make a we could make a list. <laughs> so how do yeah. people uh how do people track you down if they want to find the book? Do you have a website? Are you on any social yeah, media? So I have a website. If you put my name in Google, Avi Loeb and Harvard University, then you will find my website. And on it, uh, there is a link to my book. Actually, there were two books this year that I published, and also to my commentaries, my essays that appear every few days. Some of the things we discussed uh, uh, are mentioned in my rec- most recent commentaries. And and uh, I'm now um, uh, starting to work on my next book. And uh, stay tuned. It will be interesting. That's great. So did you kind of break away from academia in a way? And just are you going, going rogue here a little bit with your own research and all that or and, and all these projects? Or are you still well, sort okay. of... So, you know, I was asked at Harvard but, uh, as soon as I established the Galileo project whether that's part of my day job. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, you know, throughout my career as an astronomer, I was interpreting data that was collected by telescopes. 
Okay, and that's what the Galileo project is doing. We are collecting data by with telescopes and in, trying to interpret it. And in astronomy, there is no limit on how close an object could be and still be of interest. You know, we we are studying the sun, we study meteors, cosmic rays that get through the Earth's atmosphere, and um, asteroids and comets. So um, it's really part of my day job, and and they agreed. So it's just a different project than you know what was pursued by other astronomers in the past that's all but um so, uh, on the other hand we have a chance of finding something new yeah so i'm not really breaking off i'm just uh, going on a new path a new road a road not taken and i'm continuing to publish scientific papers and this year i'm actually on sabbatical uh the first one in 19 years because uh, I was the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard for nine for nine years actually the longest serving chair and and I uh, finished my term um, last year and decided to take uh, a year off a sabbatical for the first time in 19 years so nice uh, that's 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 what gives me a lot of freedom to do creative work um just yeah, in time for lockdown. Just yeah. Are you? Uh, well, can people support Project Galileo somehow? Is there any sort yeah, of crowdfunding? So or? We, we have a website. The Galileo Project has a website that you can get to uh, by typing Galileo Project Harvard, and uh, in it there there is a, a link to um, a, a, a website where uh, people can donate funds if they want. And also a link uh, for any volunteers that might be interested in contributing their expertise to the project. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time. This has been great. I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for yeah. the excellent questions. Yeah, thanks. All right. right on, Abby. Thanks for coming on the show. Come back okay. anytime and yeah, well, uh, good look, luck with the Galileo project. And looking forward Thank to your you. next yeah. book, too. Well, yeah. you're at it. Prove that the earth is round, too, so that I can just <laughs> get this off my back. <laughs> If we find uh, uh, an interesting fish, I'll, I'll bring it. <laughs> Perfect. <Okay. laughs> right on. Thanks, Thanks, Abby. See ya. Bye-bye. And that was our chat with Avi Loeb. What'd you think? What do you, ooh, look yeah. at that. Look at ooh. that uh, screensaver. Madison fixed yeah, it for She was, came down here one day good. and she's oh, like, oh my God. Yeah. She's like, why is that on the TV? Yeah. Yeah. So she yeah, it was it. good. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I was kind of hoping he'd get in because one of the projects he was working on that he, he talks about in the book, but he didn't get into here is this light sail project with uh, and Larry Milner. Do you remember Milner? I, I don't know if his name was Larry Milner. It was uh, he he's the, the Russian, show? the Russian um, uh, entrepreneur. Remember? Do you remember years ago when we started the podcast? On there was that Russian entrepreneur that was putting all this money into finding UFOs. You remember hearing about that? Well, he was working with uh, Avi on the light sail project, and then he also mentions this black hole project that they're trying to f- trying to figure out because they ne- they said they've never really taken a picture of a black hole yet, so they're trying to find that. How do you take a picture of a black hole? You just you just find it. Oh, you know what? Just take pictures of space and then uh, do the negative thing. There you go. <laughs> just flip them over. No, there's a, it's it's a. Uh, there's a bunch of dust, cosmic dust that circles just around the, the hole, and shouldn't it be getting fi- sucked in? It, that's the event like horizon. The that's the event horizon. So it's a cosmic. Room but that's job. what they can see. Is the, <laughs> the, the dust. You just ruined like Harvard scientists. Well, like, you won't podcast. listen this far. <laughs> Hopefully, all the. No, I won't say. All the what? All the people who shut it off before that. Why? I'm just kidding. I just okay. made them laugh. Okay. Why are you so against laughter, Darlon? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
Big thanks to uh, Avi for coming on the show. Big thanks to you guys for listening. Even bigger thanks if you're one of the 1%, the uh, one in a hundred that chooses to support our work here over in Grimerica. If you want to join the ranks, head over to grimerica.ca slash support today. Make a one-time donation, sign up for a monthly, maybe give us a little Christmas bonus, a little year-end bonus after a couple tough COVID years. But we are going, we are growing. 2022 is looking great. We got a full slate of event calendars. We'll be launching our first 2023 event right away here. Uh, join the chats, grimerica.ca slash chats. Get the audiobooks. Graham's done 28. Well, actually, Joe did a couple. Yeah. There's 28 audiobooks because Isis Unveiled is, a, is now submitted. It'll be live any day, which is a 28th wow, yeah, title. Head to adultbrain.ca. Check out Occult Worlds out now. There's a whole bunch of them. Grab an audiobook. Um, I think that's it. We should Spam do a show. Graham. Maybe we should just do a show one day just uh, talking about all the books and going through them all. People kind of suggested we should do that. But, you could just. But maybe in smaller blurbs, but I don't know. Well, you it's read just, them all. I can't. I know. I don't have a well, lot can, to contribute. Yeah, you, you I could, can contribute oh, your presence. I'll start you saving. Could hold the, space for me. Oh, I've not a good space. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start down. I'll start saving some bloopers. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 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 the other day I was editing and you were like on the phone for a while. Yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, that was probably the pet emergency. I think, I think happening. it was like on speaker too. So I was yeah. like, I feel like I don't need to listen to any of this. I was like, I moved over. <laughs> I was like, check. <laughs> anyway, uh, grammar.ca slash sport. Do all that other stuff in the show notes. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Started writing down a list of things to do. Number one on the list of things to do was to write a list of things to do. Number two on the list, a little more nihilist, wrote down the cake is a lie. There is no spoon. Johnny flipped out, they put him in a rubber room. Hide all your money under your mattress. You call your enemy a fascist. Somebody call an ambulance. The sky is falling. Hide all your money under your mattress. You call your enemy a fascist. Somebody call an ambulance. The sky is falling. Started to carve my initials into a 150-foot tree. Forgot who I was, where I was. Cut my hand and it began to bleed. Was only looking to leave my mark in the bark in the park. Now I'm in agony. I have no name. My legacy is written in the sparks in your brain. Hide all your money under your mattress You call your enemy a fascist Somebody call an ambulance The sky is falling Hide all your money under your mattress You call your enemy a fascist Somebody call an ambulance The sky is falling Johnny crumpled up, threw away his list of things to do Instead he got to jot down his life But legacy manifesto, manifesto Live by principles of peace Mix it with charity Don't leave the next generation A world of scarcity Johnny wasn't a commie He was my fellow man Johnny wasn't a commie He was my fellow man Johnny wasn't a Nazi He was a firebrand Johnny wasn't a Nazi He was a firebrand
find all your money under your mattress You call your enemy a fascist Somebody call an ambulance The sky is falling Hide all your money under your mattress You call your enemy a fascist Somebody call an ambulance The sky is falling Hide all your money under your mattress You call your enemy a fascist Somebody call an ambulance The sky is falling Hide all your money under your mattress You call your enemy a fascist Somebody call an ambulance The sky is falling